0: If I were to ask you, what's the most famous company slogan or motto you could think of? What would you think of? So uh, a a motto or something that a company brands themselves as. When you think of this company, you think of of their slogan. Try and think of the first things that you would come up with. For some reason, and I think I learned something about myself uh, this week, the first things I thought of were all fast food companies. Um, so either that's really good branding or that says something about me. So I thought of uh, McDonald's, What's the slogan for McDonald's Someone yell it out? <laughs> Strong. I love how the butt up 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 was part of it. Yes, I'm loving it. I always thought that was kind of a weird slogan. like it's very cocky. like you're gonna love it. Like it's either very intimidating or very cocky, but the whole point, right? is like you're gonna like our brand um does anyone know harvey's has anyone even heard of that company before yeah just some of you so when i was a kid there was there was harvey's and by the way i always got it confused with another fast food place which is arby's very yeah right oh yeah is arby's like way better what's arby's motto someone yell it out wow is that really what it is (laughs) i love how both the dudes and for some reason the ladies just went like a semitone like we have the meat that's how they say it. That's so funny. I've never heard of that. That is even weirder than than Harvey's. Harvey's is uh, Harvey's makes your hamburger a beautiful thing. Is that's that's truly what the motto is. Um, anyone else? Your one chance. Name out a, a motto or slogan that's very famous. Uh, Mel. You what, What's that? That's so funny, Frank. Strong, Frank, I love that you said that because that's the one I'm gonna bring up right now. Uh, In 1988, um, a very, very famous branding executive came up with the slogan, Just Do It, which as Frank has already informed us, is a Nike slogan. Apparently they went from somewhere around, I think it was 400 to $500 million worldwide, which is a lot of money, obviously, but after that slogan, Within only a couple of years, they went to $9.2 billion, just a ton. And of course, there's lots of other things involved in having a successful marketing campaign. But your slogan has a lot to do with it. Now, ask yourself the thought-provoking question, why does that slogan work? Just do it. Why does that slogan work? Why is that something that we recognize today? Why can that slogan generate sales? Um, Why? How do you know that it is going to be successful? Well, I found someone online who wrote a professional article and they explained the reason this way The slogan is simple and effective in communicating its message. More importantly, it applies to all people, not just athletes. I don't want to go running, just do it. I don't want to lift weights today just do it. These three simple words can be applied to fitness along with many hardships that the American people face in everyday life. It allowed the average consumer to feel as if they were capable of achieving greatness when they purchased Nike gear. You might laugh, but it worked. Whether you are a professional athlete or just someone passionate about exercising, the message is inspiring, and it speaks to the universal truth of pushing oneself beyond our limits. It provokes a non, no, uh, no-nonsense attitude while remaining positive and inspirational. Now, one thing I found as in our internet-rich society we can be a lot more uh, cynical and skeptical about the power of branding in our lives, but the reality was people in 1988 really believed in that message and that's why that branding was so successful. Just do it. There is something about this idea of a company telling you with our brand, you can be independent. You can be in control. You can really believe this truth that if you push yourself enough, You can accomplish anything. The question is, do you think just do it is a helpful way to think about the Christian life? Do you think what it means, partly, to be a Christian is to just push yourself and you will be able to do everything Christ calls you to do? One pastor whose book I was reading just recently who gave me the idea for this illustration, this is what he said. He said, I learned a long time ago That just do it might be a great slogan for the world's largest manufacturer of sportswear, but it's a horrible motto for the Christian life. Why do you think just do it is a horrible motto for the Christian life? I think what he was really trying to get at is this. I think many Christians have this attitude that when it comes to the Christian life, you can read it and you can learn who Jesus is, and why he died, and then you can see all these commands of things you're supposed to do. And you can think, okay, I'm just going to go out and do them. And then we don't. And then we don't, for some reason. It just doesn't work to just read words on a page and then nothing happen, and then be able to obey them. And I think that works double when you're thinking about some of the attitudes that you're supposed to have, namely, joy. Joy. I think we can see the Bible and it says, be joyful. In Philippians alone, Paul commands us multiple times throughout the book to be joyful, to have joy, to rejoice in the Lord. And then you go out there and you can't just rejoice. You can't just do it. It is difficult for some reason. And the reason it's so difficult is because every single one of us in this room, we are weak and dependent people. We constantly leave this place, and we go out into the world, and we forget what we're doing, and we forget why we're doing it, and we forget why we feel like we should be doing it to begin with. And then even if you remember, even if you memorize like six or seven verses that tell you what to do, you're still left without strength very often, whether you are fighting distractions or you are dealing with disappointments, or even if you're dealing with those moments of depression. That's part of the reason why just do it is not a very good place to start in the Christian life. So the question is, where do I start then? If I can't force myself to just be strong enough to be a Christian and do what Christ calls me to do, where do I start? And that is a really good place to begin as we understand the book of Philippians. What Philippians is going to teach us and what verses 3 to 8 that we're going to cover today in chapter 1 are going to teach us is that you don't start getting joy from looking inside yourself and just trying harder. You start to live the Christian life with joy when you start looking at the gospel and you start understanding what the gospel does. What Paul is going to do today is Paul is going to introduce us to why he had joy in the gospel and then why that joy motivated him so much in his own gospel ministry. Now, as we get into the text, let me actually read it for you so you know what we're talking about. We're dealing with verses 3 to verse 8. But I'm going to start in verse 1 to set the tone. This is the beginning of the book of Philippians. Paul and Timothy... The letter of Philippians begins with Paul praying, thankfully, for these Christians in Philippi. It opens with a prayer of thanksgiving. And you'll be able to notice that just regularly reading it because as we go through these verses, one of the most obvious things that pops out about it is Paul's joy over these Christians. Paul is joyful when he thinks of these Christians. Verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. It might seem obvious that Christians should have joy, but if you have been a Christian for a while, you will realize that there are certain Christians you think of and you're like, it's kind of hard to live with them. And there's certain Christians you think of and you're like, eh, I live with them. They're like that random uncle I see like three times a year. But then there are other Christians that you think of and you get excited because you love to live life with them. If you read Paul's letters, you'll notice a bit of that tone in the way he talks. He loved all of the people that Christ had saved, but he had different tones in different books. If you read the book of Galatians, Paul's kind of angry because these People in Galatia are not believing the gospel. And if you go in Corinth and you go to that church and you see the letters that Paul wrote for them, you'll notice there's two letters and they're both kind of long because Corinth was a messy church. And so there is a kind of, oh, okay, I got to go through this and this and this. Philippians is short and joyful for a reason. Paul loved thinking about this church. He loved praying for this church and you know what prayer was not a chore when he thought of this church it was the natural consequence of them coming to his mind verse eight solidifies that he says for god is my witness how i yearn for you all with the affection of christ jesus you guys know what that word yearn means it's like love very deeply Paul knew that God saw his honest, joyful, passionate attitude towards the Philippians, but he wanted them to know, hey, I'm not just praying for you all. I love to pray for you all because I love you. And remembering you fills my heart with joy. And that actually gets at something very important about this idea of joy, which is joy isn't just a feeling. Uh, Joy is an attitude, And it's usually a consequence, which means it comes after something. There's a reason Paul had joy thinking about the Philippians. And you can actually see that if you look at verse uh, 7. If you look at verse 7, you'll notice that Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. This idea of feeling, it's not totally the word for feeling like we think of with just emotions. It actually is a Greek word that deals with both passion and thinking and understanding. It's rational. As one commentator said, it embraces both feeling and thought, your emotions and your mind. And that word actually shows up 10 times in the book of Philippians because Paul is trying to explain to us the kind of mindset, the kind of thinking, the kind of way we should think about the world. And it's connected with this. There's a reason Paul had joy. There's a reason God would validate Paul in saying, yes, you have the appropriate attitude when you think of these believers. And the idea comes down to this. The Philippians were partners with Paul in the gospel. They were partners with Paul in the gospel. The Philippians were people who Paul loved because they loved him and his mission that God had given him in the world. Look back at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now These people wanted Paul to do what God called him to do they wanted to support Paul The main way that people note is that they did this financially And actually, if you read uh, through the book of Philippians, you'll notice this. If you go in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, at the end of the letter, he says, "'You Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only.'" And he continues down in verse 18. He says, "'I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent.'" A fragrant offering and a a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. These were people that Paul says in verse 5, from the first day until now, from the moment they became Christians. They said, we got to support Paul. We got to take an offering. We got to work. We got to bring our finances together. We got to bring our funds together. And we got to send Paul wherever God's calling him to go. Verse seven actually continues this exact same thought. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for, which is another way of saying, because you are all partakers with me of grace. Now, a lot of the people believe that partakers of grace, it's like he's saying, I hold you in my heart because all of us are receiving the grace of God. We're all believers and that's wonderful. And there's a sense of, where that's true, but actually in the Greek, that word partakers is the same word for partners. It's the same idea of verse five. What Paul's talking about isn't just, I love you so much because we're all receiving the grace of God, but rather he's saying, I love you so much because you're partnering with me in a mission of grace. It's not that we're all receiving grace, it's that we get to give grace to other people, and you'll notice that as he continues, because he says, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Think about those things separately. What does it mean to be a partaker with Paul of grace in his imprisonment? So we learned from the introduction last week that Paul's in prison, but the Philippians aren't in prison. So when Paul says, you are a partaker with me of grace in my imprisonment, Paul is saying, not only are you supporting me while I'm in prison. Because when you're in prison, it's not like now. You didn't just get money and food from the guards. Like, they would just leave you to die unless you had friends helping you out in prison. So not only are they doing that, but Paul is saying, your attitude is like, if I'm in prison, you're in prison. If I'm suffering, you're suffering. You are here with me in spirit. You are empathizing with me. But he's also saying this, they're partakers with him of grace in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word defense is the word apologia, which is where we get apologetics. It's this idea of a reasonable defense of the gospel. Paul is saying, Philippians, you love me because you want me to go and explain the significance and importance of the gospel against the values and worldviews of this world. You want me free to explain to other people why the gospel is the only true way to live. But it's not just that. They're also partakers with him of grace in the confirmation of the gospel, which is this idea of establishing or properly upholding. It's the idea of saying, Paul, we love you, and therefore we want you free to keep sharing the gospel with people who already know the gospel. So that they would know it more and love it more deeply and live by it more faithfully. This is why this is so important for you. Because the idea that they're getting at, the idea that Paul's getting at is he's not just saying, Thank you so much for loving me, because I've got just this sick personality. Thank you guys so much for loving me, because I'm just like I'm just so cool. And I really appreciate you notice how cool I am. Thank you so much for realizing how awesome I am and the value I'm contributing to the whole world by sharing the gospel. That's not what they're saying. Paul is not saying, I'm thankful you love me. He's saying, I'm thankful you love the gospel. I'm thankful that you are partnering with me because you love the gospel. Keep your finger in Philippians and turn over to 2 Corinthians. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. If someone's beside you having trouble finding it, just help them find the book of 2 Corinthians. It's to the side of your Bible that has more Bible, not towards the end of the Bible, closer to the beginning, but not too far. Mine is only about 20 pages. And go to chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is talking to a different church in Corinth. We brought up this section last week. But he actually talks about the Philippians. They are the church in Macedonia. And he actually talks about why they are giving so much to Paul. And I want you to see this for yourself. So in Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, Paul says this. In a severe test of affliction there, which is the church of Macedonia, which is the Philippians, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So Paul is explaining Philippian, or uh, Corinth, you should look at the Philippians because they were so desperate to support me that they had to beg me on their knees to give me money. They love this mission. And you know why if you look at verse 5. Because verse 5, Paul says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The reason they support Paul is because they love the gospel. When you love the mission you naturally support the missionaries. When you care about the message, you don't have to think twice about giving or supporting or loving or praying for the messengers. Because the reality is, when you take your eyes off yourself and you and others unite around a message worth living for and worth dying for, amazing things happen. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of a city called Dunkirk. Probably most of you. Keep your hand raised if it's because you've heard of the movie or seen the movie. Probably lots of you. Dunkirk is a town that probably no one would have heard of except for the important role that it played in World War II. Uh, Dunkirk is a city with a big beach that's on the edge of France. And at one point, um, all of the Allied troops, which were all of the people that didn't like Hitler very much, um, they were losing the war. And there was a moment when the whole world was watching World War II, believing that Hitler was going to win. And it was because all of the Allied troops left in Europe were in this bay in France. It was about a three-hour swim by boat I don't know if you can swim by a boat. It's a three-hour boat trip from the banks of the UK, but it was all of the Allied forces left. 335,000 men, mainly, soldiers, basically waiting to die. And the reason they were waiting to die is because uh, Winston Churchill, who was one of the main leaders uh, in the Allied forces, he was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, he was pretty sure there was absolutely no way they could rescue all of those men. 335,000 people. So what they did is they took a long shot, and they went on the radio, and they said, if you got a boat, go to Dover, which is basically a beach very close uh, to Normandy, which is where Dunkirk was, and you just take your boat. You go over, and you try to pick up who you can. I don't care if you have a yacht. I don't care if you have a rowboat. Just go. Not a very convincing task for anyone because the reality is that if you wanted to go you had a very high chance of either getting hit by a u-boat which is a submarine a mine you'll get attacked from a plane in the air or you'll get attacked from people on the beach because they would have to go many routes close to the shore potentially so you had a very high chance of dying and you weren't a soldier you were just some guy they were pretty sure they would get about 13% of those soldiers back. But what happened was when 220 light warships went to rescue the soldiers, enough to save about that 13%, as they got closer and closer, more civilian vessels started joining them. Until about 10 minutes from shore, 650 civilian vessels had joined them. In the next three days... 338,000 soldiers were saved. Almost 90% more than they assumed. The idea behind that, or basically the morale that that boosted, was called the Dunkirk Spirit. And it was actually one of the main morale boosters that was needed for all of those soldiers to go back and retake Europe and eventually win World War II. The question was, why? Why did that generate so much? It generated so much morale because people who weren't involved in the war believed in that war. It's not that anyone wanted to fight, but they realized the message of saving people who were doing so much, saving people who were working so hard to try and establish freedom in more countries than just their own decided to commit themselves to a cause even though many of them died and many boats were sunk because a lot of people realized if the mission is important and beautiful then you don't need to force yourself to participate you just will and what paul is insinuating here in his prayer what we should naturally glean from this prayer is we're supposed to feel that way about the gospel You know, it it might feel worth it to go and rescue people from mortal death, from one death, but how much more excited should we be to participate in a mission that saves people from eternity, eternity? We've been given a message that Christ can be ours forever, not by you doing anything, but because of this message in which God has done everything for you to receive something you don't deserve. Adoption into his family, eternal love by God, not as a judge, but as a father, escape from an eternity of self-imposed destruction and life forever, like we sang, feasting in eternal joy. That's the message we have. That's a message that should naturally excite us and make us want to participate together in it. And there's something about the joy generated when it's not just you doing that, but when you have the confirmation and the affirmation of many other people who aren't just themselves saved, but desire that others would be saved. Some of you guys got a taste of that because of the Alaska trip this year. And I know based from talking to a lot of you guys and then taking a survey online, a lot of the rest of you are excited about going to Alaska potentially next year. And that's good because I know many of you guys have heard stories about being able to go to a place in the middle of nowhere together and be able to share the gospel to people from very broken homes and from very broken lives who need to hear this message. And even though that's exciting to think about, and even though that's exciting to think about going somewhere so far to people supposedly so broken and sharing that kind of message, that, of course, is exciting. But the question is, are you just as excited to do the same thing here? Because Alaska is not the only place in the world that has broken people. Alaska is not the only place in the world that has people who desperately need to hear the gospel, how their lives can be transformed by the security of salvation in Christ. Do we have an idea that we we need a big trip to generate excitement to do something for Jesus, or are we just as excited to do something for Jesus right now? Because the reality is that's really hard. It's actually not easy, I will completely admit, for teenagers to just naturally say, Okay, this gospel thing is really exciting. Some of you have heard it most of your lives. Some of you are comprehending it but doubting it, and there's something about this gospel that you might comprehend, but it doesn't necessarily make you passionate and excited. Whether it's courage or boldness or whatever it is, it's very easy to feel held back from truly living out the call of the gospel. I think Paul knew that in a sense. And that's why in this chunk, he doesn't want to just say, I just, I just love that you're doing stuff. Because Paul wasn't worried that the only way he could be joyful in the gospel is if he saw a lot of people. That wasn't what got him necessarily excited. What got him excited is the certainty that God's mission would be accomplished. The certainty that God's mission would be accomplished. And I'll tell you how I know that. And it's in verse Three. it's the part we skip very quickly Paul begins his prayer by saying I thank my God for you he doesn't say Philippians I'm super stoked that you guys are so awesome and you're doing so much for the gospel he says I thank God why would Paul thank God for something that people are doing It's because all people who understand the gospel know that God is the one who gave them the gospel. Not just the explanation of the gospel, but the ability to believe the gospel. And that's how you get to this verse in the middle of this chunk that's probably one of the most famous verses in the entire letter of Philippians. And it's in verse 6, where Paul says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul praises God that God allowed these Philippians to have a first day in the gospel and that God is also guaranteed that they will have a last day in the gospel. He says in verse 6, He began, which means to inaugurate to start something that didn't exist before. It points to a decisive and deliberate act. Someone did something for you to believe the gospel, and it wasn't you beginning to believe the gospel. It was God allowing you to believe the gospel. One commentator said, it means here was something planned and executed to perfection. We are called to believe the gospel. But there's also something else the Bible explains to us about the gospel, which is that people who are dead can't do anything, let alone believe the gospel. But what Jesus Christ did is he presented to your heart, against your heart's own will, the ability to see the gospel and say, that is right. How could a message so humiliating and so self-effacing A message that I am a great sinner. Why could that be so great? Why would I ever accept that in my pride and stubbornness and arrogance? It's because that message is actually the means to demonstrate God's glory. Not just in his sovereignty, but that life only makes sense if my heart truly believes that a perfect moral creator would actually choose me to participate in worshiping him for eternity, feasting with him in joy forever, and then having the opportunity to have my life have a purpose. I love how one commentator explains this idea. Salvation would be a wretchedly unsure thing if it had no other foundation than my having chosen Christ. The human will, which means our ability to make decisions, it blows hot and it blows cold, and it's firm and unstable. It offers no security of tenure. But it is the will of God that is the ground of salvation. No one would be saved had not the Lord been moved by his own spontaneous and unexplained love to choose his people before the world was. And at that decisive moment, to open our hearts to hear and to understand and accept the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This then is assurance. God has willed my salvation. Do you guys remember two weeks ago when we read in Acts the stories of those three people, Lydia, the jailer, the demon-possessed girl? Do you remember how Luke explained how Lydia got saved? Acts chapter 16, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to hear and understand the words that Paul was saying. What Paul's trying to explain is he has so much joy when he looks at all of these different people in Philippi, all these different people who have every reason to enjoy the comforts of being a Roman citizen and a Roman colony and receive all the pleasures this world has to offer. And for some reason, they hear this message and they join the cause. A cause that guarantees suffering, guarantees rejection by the world, guarantees nonconformity, guarantees uncomfortability. Why? Because God doesn't allow his children to bail on believing in him. Because God does something. And as verse six explains, what God begins, he also completes. He who began a good work and you will bring it to completion. God brings his people all the way home. Think about this from God's perspective. Imagine God sent his son to live a perfect life and then die and be punished and then rise again to prove that he could beat death and that anyone who trusted in his son would be able to be with him forever, not because they're amazing, but because Christ did everything amazing that we were supposed to do. And Christ was punished for all the sins that we should be punished for. And then God is like, I really, really hope people believe in my son. I really hope. I hope it works out. Is that a gospel that you want to believe in? Or do you want to believe in a message from a father so loving that he would come to you and he would prove to your heart, you must believe in me. And he would make it so. Because he loves you enough to save you from yourself. The reason it's so important to get that is because it becomes so key to understanding Paul's joy in the book of Philippians. It's like this beginning thing that every other thing following rests on God is sovereign and loving and he has a mission that he's going to succeed in. And you get to be a part of it. and you get to partner in that together. In John chapter 5 verse 21, Jesus said, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. And later on, John says in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, for the lamb is in the midst of the throne, and there there will be a shepherd. What do shepherds do? When their sheep run away, what do they do? He explains, he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear From their eyes. God is going to do that. He's guaranteed to do that. And he's going to do it for many people like the Philippians. All sorts of different people. All of the people that he keeps mentioning. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine. For you all. Making my prayer with joy. Later in verse 7. For you are all partakers with me of grace. Verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all. All saving so many people and the means by which He is saving people is this message that He's given us and by involving us in that mission. even broken, weak people like us. If you want an example of this even from the Old Testament, read Ezekiel chapter 20. It's a long chapter and it's a long chapter about how God's people are really broken and messed up and hypocritical and stubborn. And it seems ridiculous that God would save people like us and then allow us to share the gospel with other people. But what you'll notice if you read that whole chapter is God says one phrase many, many times. He says, for my name's sake. He's explaining God has, has guaranteed that even through people like us who are so stubborn and broken, he's going to save us and use us to share a message God will use to save other people because God is glorified in that. God is glorified to give us eternal value by allowing us to be together and enjoy the glory of God on earth together and share it with other people on earth for the rest of our lives and then all meet together in heaven and say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. God's going to prove that he is worthy of being glorified by explaining the goodness of his sovereignty over everything, including salvation. And here's the ultimate application question for tonight. Do you understand that? And are you excited by that? Because if you've ever been shared to scare the gospel with someone, you might not believe that. If you've ever been unenthusiastic to share the gospel, you might not understand that. If you've ever been bored by the gospel, you might not understand that. Which doesn't just mean you need motivation. It might be your opportunity to look at your heart and understand, am I really saved? Because it's not just the message of the gospel that gave Paul so much joy and gave him joy that other people were partnering. It's the assurance the gospel promises. I'm going to share the gospel with all sorts of people And some people will believe, and some people won't believe. But for every single person who does, that's a miracle that God allowed me to witness. It's a miracle he allowed me to participate in. Let me give you one other verse to really just get this in our heads. Not just the the truth of this, but the joy that's behind this. It's in, in 1 John chapter 4 where John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is the key verse. This is 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you want to love people more? Do you want to be unified with people? Do you want to be that person who's not worried about what other teenagers think about me? All I care is that they, even against their own will, might know the gospel, so that they might know the God behind the gospel and have an eternity of joy with him. Let me end with a story. When I was in seminary, I went to Albania, which is a country not a ton of people know. It's in Europe. It's across from Italy. It was a country under communism for 40 years. They didn't know basically any other country existed, and there was a church there, and I got to go with a friend and six other people around our age, and we got to go and teach English to people. Um, If you learn English in Albania, um, then basically you have a really high chance of getting a really good job. And so we got to partake in that. And uh, when you get to share English with people, you get to share the gospel with people because you have to ask a lot of questions, and then they have to ask you questions, and you can kind of have an opportunity to share the gospel. We were there for two weeks, and in one week... I got nothing. A lot of adults who are very smart and already knew a good amount of English really didn't want to hear anything from me about God. And it would have been very easy to be disappointed except for one thing, which is at the church there. I met a 14-year-old boy whose name was Mateo. And Mateo was the only Christian in his family. The rest of his family was Muslim. Uh, He had said that he had got connected to the church, and within the last year, he became a Christian. And within this year, he wanted to go to the youth group and talk to other kids about the gospel, not assuming that any of them knew the gospel. He was also very, very comfortable sharing the gospel with his own family, who were Muslim. And the thing that was so cool was it wasn't even that he was running around like crazy excited. He was so matter of fact about every fact of who Jesus Christ was and what he came uh, to do. And that wasn't because he grew up in church. It wasn't because he had years of Bible knowledge that explained all of these things. It was just because he heard the gospel and God's spirit brought him to life and he wanted to live for Christ and he knew that's why he was created. I went home a week later and I told my roommate about Matteo. And he got really emotional. He started crying, and he was in the army. So he was a tough guy, so I didn't see him cry very much. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. What a sensitive guy. Just like praying for this 14-year-old boy he's never met uh, who got saved. And it turned out that he wasn't just crying because of a 14-year-old boy. It's because he knew that boy. Uh, What I didn't know is he had gone to Albania two years before me, and he shared the gospel with that same boy. And a year later, when this boy was up to no good, he remembered that message that my roommate told him, which was the gospel, and he was saved. He immediately knew he was in sin. He immediately knew he needed a good God. And I cannot tell you how much joy me and my roommate got to share together, knowing we got to see the same kid, a kid he met who was a stubborn, stubborn, And uninterested in the gospel as you can imagine, and me seeing a completely different boy. God really saves people, and He really saves people through broken people like us, and He really gives us the opportunity to see God doing that. And the question we begin Philippians with is Are you excited about that mission? Are you excited about how transformative and amazing and specifically joy-giving this message is?